Excellent. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Patreon back half of the No Country podcast. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, what's up, man? Oh, man. I'll, I'm, I'm glad to be back in Vegas after, uh, well, some heroic driving and uh, surviving and, well, navigating. Although there was a moment when Siri told me, you are not navigating anywhere uh, which I thought was kind of, uh, I, I think that's the catch cry uh, sum up of, of all of us at, at this strange time. But yeah, so after the Seattle trip, I, I just did this momentous uh, L.A. up the coast to Big Sur to see Patti Smith. We've been talking about that in our free to air episode. She played at the Henry Miller Library, which is a beautiful, beautiful uh, place, just naturally, but culturally very, very important. Uh, But coming into LA, you know, there's something about uh, coming into Los Angeles, you know, uh, by car anyway. Well, more so by car than by plane. I always have some moment of of some kind of discovery and a a billboard I've never seen before, Um, radio. And I think this is a nice uh, thing that that happened because it ties in with our metaphor of uh, crystal radio, pirate radio, ghost radio signal. I happened to finally pick up the uh, public jazz station, KJazz. And they're run by, you know, amateur, you know, DJs who are just impassioned uh, aficionados, you know, and they know stuff and they share stuff. And one of the things that David and I are trying to do is kind of have that spirit of uh, the gifted amateur enjoyer, sharer uh, of culture side of things. Well, this guy put on... And I I didn't know anything about this. Charlie Watts, the recently deceased drummer of the Rolling Stones, actually did a lot in the jazz world as a drummer, but as a vocalist. And I had no idea. And this humble but very expert musicology DJ put on Charlie Watts singing, I've Got a Crush on You which is, I mean, many people have done it. Sinatra's version is is very famous. If people don't know it, it it is a long and immensely complicated melody line. And Charlie Watts just is sublime. I absolutely encourage you to seek that out, whether you care about jazz and a certain kind of era of vocal jazz songs, it doesn't matter. Anybody anywhere can hear somebody just totally on top of the art form excellent yeah i'll have to check that out and i'll put that in the show notes as i go hunting for our links we're going to have some good links this time i have uh on the david side of things much less exciting but i think gus has fallen asleep so if you were listening to the free to air episode he was our third mic but uh our third mic is now currently asleep on the job so you know, He's what made me think of Charlie Watts because of, of the vocal styling that you two have going on together. Yeah, it's just, it's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely. I'm not sure what I pay him for, but you know. Uh, it's, oh well, no, there he is. There he is. See, so timing, is, timing is everything. 
Yeah, yeah, he's he's fighting it right now. I was telling you this on the phone before we started recording, but I have a feeling that he can tell that his daddy is doing something because now is completely his nap time and he's normally sound asleep, but he can just he can feel the vibes, man. He knows that something's yeah, going on. Yeah. <laughs> but, wants to be um, in the band yeah look i think we might have to strike a deal with him you know it's mm-hmm. uh, uh it, it's an important contribution it's spiritual it's melodic often it's yeah. certainly uh got a wonderful personal style yeah absolutely but you know we were talking off off mic and i do want to put this into the podcast because you know we're talking a lot about people becoming their own master and their own slave and how to kind of break out of that. And I think the number one most important thing that we've talked about on this show so far is developing number one memory, being able to remember what happened yesterday, let alone a week ago, right? Uh, But also being able to analyze our own beliefs and break out of these enslaving patterns of thought that don't lead us anywhere, right? So a perfect example of this came recently this week when Rolling Stone published an account from an Oklahoman doctor. This hit close to home because this was from Oklahoma. This doctor was claiming that the ICUs were full, not of coronavirus patients, not of gunshot victims, but of people who were taking ivermectin. And also not ivermectin in its human-grade medical form, but the horse version of ivermectin, which will make you... Uh, shit out your stomach lining if you take it and die. You'll 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 die if you take too much ivermectin. Well, Rachel Maddow, that uh, complete idiot of a broadcaster. Hold on, give me one second. I'm just gonna grab this kid because he's he's. Sorry, listeners. Oh no, yeah, I'm just gonna pick. So with this uh, with this story, um, it was like I said, it was broadcast on MSNBC, and Maddow tweeted it out. So it must be true. So it must be true, and of course, the story turns out to be completely false. Uh, the doctor who said that the hospitals were overrun with these ivermectin victims didn't even work in the hospital that he was referring to. It was a rumor that he had heard, and the hospital itself put out a press release saying that that is not the case. They do, in fact, have uh, ICUs that are full, that are running out of beds, uh, which is a definite, uh, no doubt about it, infrastructural issue across the entire United States, but not because people were eating the horse dewormer version of ivermectin. So I saw across social media people saying things that, you know about these dumb hicks, and it was good that they were dying because this was a Darwin Awards-type situation. Never mind the fact that uh, ivermectin, in its human-grade form, won the 2015 Nobel Prize for Biology, compared to penicillin and aspirin as a wonder drug, right? All of this was thrown out of the window because people wanted to score points against, I guess, the idiot oaky masses. And, you know, I take it personally, take it a little personally, because we're not all stupid here. Um... It's a geographically different region than Los Angeles or New York. It has uh, an outsized influence from the Baptist church. Um, The industry is different, and the way people have a relationship to their food, to their family, to their guns, and to their religion, it's it's all different. But 
it doesn't mean that the coasts are somehow better than Oklahoma. And it certainly doesn't mean that the coasts are somehow smarter than Oklahoma. It's a different set of biases. So when I saw that, I felt like it was more important now more than ever to really kind of examine the things that you read online. I mean, this is rule number one of the internet. Don't believe anything that you read until you do a little bit of research for yourself. And people just completely like do not do this anymore. But break free of your chains, listeners. Break free of the of the news cycle. Don't take anything <laughs> as truth at all until you look it up. And remember, if you say something, you better have seen something. That's right. I saw that I saw that at a wall and I thought Oh, wow. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Gus update. He's now asleep in my arms. So this is an added dimension to the No Country podcast. A sleeping baby while I, yeah. while I speak. You heard it here <laughs> first. And, and now we're not. It's, it's just beautiful, blissful, quiet. That's so uh, appropriate to, uh, to what we're talking about. And I, you know, I have an interesting link about... Uh, the whole West Coast, but it's also an East Coast thing because Patty Smith is solidly New York. So there is a very strong sense of America continuing to be led in many ways by our coastal uh, elites. I think that is a term that is really fair. I, I sometimes have a problem with elites and elitism because I think it's too widely applied, but I think there is a kind of... Uh, well, it's a smugness that is starting to bother yeah, yeah. many people. Yeah. And I think you in the heartland of America have really tremendous reason uh, to feel resentment about that. I also there are two things that, uh, you know, driving through California now, uh, it, it, it's pretty damn dry. I, you know, I was on the coast. and It was really beautiful. And, and there was fog and wildflowers and hawks. But, you know, a lot of California has is been burning. But for long, long time, uh, really since even before the Dust Bowl, uh, the Oklahoma heartland influence in California particularly has been an enormous uh, ethnic, racial, cultural contribution. And it's interesting that many of the kinds of coastal people, but the California people that I think that you were uh, suggesting, they have some real problems with that history, with the whole, with people who come from dust, you know. Grapes of wrath type stuff. Yeah, it's like, well, okay, you got to kind of, when are we going to be able to start acknowledging all of the histories? Wouldn't that really be diversity and inclusion? Uh, not just cherry picking the ones that sort of meet uh, a, a certain social standard of nicety right now. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. So, uh, continuing on from our conversation, Chris, where would you like to go with this uh, with this topic of discussion? Okay, well, we 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 suggested that as beautiful as the uh, the event was of Patty Smith in the Henry Miller Library environment in in gorgeous Big Sur, one of the great coastal uh, regions in the world. Uh, there was a sense of, of, of joy and, and, and optimism. David and I talked in the earlier episode about should we be optimistic about the cultural future, the ghost signal 
uh, future for, of us all? Or are we really seeing a huge uh, explosion, farewell, uh, evanescent f- final uh, wind-up of a huge generational uh, situation and, and a pattern of culture that was, that's been very exciting and nurturing. Is that winding down? The, the other thing I'd like to, uh, to, and to link back to the heartland side of things to try to kind of connect some dots, connect our peoples, connect our, our states. Uh, I had another thought about the coast highway and an aspect, not of loss or preservation not of righteousness or, or, or true joy and acceptance, but a, a darker side of, of the whole counterculture. David and I have hinted at this before. We've, we've talked a little bit about this, but uh, certainly in terms of the corporate influence on, on uh, the, the counterculture. But I want to talk about the darker side of real mayhem. And there is a photograph somewhere. I remember seeing it uh, not long after, um, well, I was in college, but it's of a figure in front of an Orange Julius franchise restaurant, you know, soda fountain, whatever, in uh, just up the road from Big Sur. And I was I noticed because at the time, Orange Julius, whose logo symbol was a kind of devil demon, was under attack because we can't have demons and logos and, you know, notwithstanding a lot of sports teams are named that. But I was really interested because I had been to that Orange Julius with one of my key high school girlfriends and the figure in front of it, a, a, a lone hitchhiker, uh, messianic sort of looking hippie with a guitar headed south from Berkeley in the Bay Area to Hollywood. David, do you have any guesses who he might have been? Um, From the heartland of America, representative of the dark side, and certainly an interesting counterpoint to a very innocent soda fountain demon. Um, So the guitar, we're talking a musician here, right? A hopeful musician. Oh, Charles Manson. Yes. Yes. You beauty. And that is exactly right. And I I want to try to find this photo. It was very, I I just, I wish I had it right in front of me now, but it's very clear in my mind. It is absolutely him. It's been identified as him. I know exactly where that picture was taken. I know when. And it is in the exact region of optimism and artistic energy and imaginative fulfillment. It's it's very near the Esalen Institute, very near the Henry Miller Library where I've been. It's just, it's part of the whole Carmel world of the poet Robinson mm-hmm. Jeffers. And it's just a rich center of everything. And yet here we have Charles Manson, you know, and we can't forget that aspect of it. And and here's just one other thing to sort of, before I turn it over to you, because he, he was born no name Maddox. His mother was a prostitute. He's not Oklahoma from Oklahoma, but he solidly identified with the heartland. And when he was asked when he was, you know, in prison, what did he associate his life with? 
he, he said things like, well, the Dust Bowl, Bing Crosby, Ma Barker, uh, a world of real grassroots gangster, not gangsta, gangster America uh, that we really haven't come to terms with even now. Right, right. Yeah, um, Manson was from Ashland. Um, Ashland is a uh, ba ba Isn't it Missouri or is he from, or is it Oklahoma? No, I think I wanted to say Kentucky or maybe Ohio. Unfortunately, I'm yeah. not going to be able to pull this out uh, on the show. I'll have to look it up later. But he, uh, I know that whatever Ashland he's from is famous for the Ashland burial mounds, uh, which in um, Oh, I Peter love Lavinda. that. Yeah, yeah. Lavinda's Sinister Forces, he kind of links these um, ancient uh, Native American burial sites to the place where Charles Manson was born as some kind of, you know, revenge, you know, spiritual revenge for what was done to the, to the Native American. But, um, so we have Charles Manson... Go, what I have a question actually about the orange Julius. I didn't realize mm. that a demon was its uh, <laughs> was its uh, logo. Do you know the story behind that? Why they would have picked a demon for? Well, it's a playful demon. I mean, you could have that yeah. on a pair of panties or you know or... in front of any number of things. It was just kind of mischievous fun. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't think. I think it was just one of many uh, design options to. Um, to kind of hint at a certain level of indulgence uh there they had i mean orange there was a weird sort of drink it wasn't really just orange it was just it was very odd but it became in my set uh, uh a meeting ground for a certain kind of group and that might have had some uh i mean those people did not go to to golden west pancakes to hang out in the parking lot and and do you know, bad things. They went to Orange Julius. Um, mm-hmm. I should probably say we went to Orange Julius. Oops. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I don't really know that. It, I do know that uh, I rem- Charles Manson was born in Cincinnati. Okay. So, okay. Uh, and he died at the prison facility in Bakersfield, California. And Bakersfield is kind of the California Nashville and was the center of the Oki recording industry there. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that's another sort of interesting point. There's there's an off, you know, for, for all of the coastal people in uh, in LA and the Bay Area, and, and really a lot of extremely wealthy people, and oftentimes bright, but people who feel that they are kind of naturally and morally superior uh, to everyone else. And that's on some basis of metro- versus rurality, uh, I think it would be worth their while to remember that California in particular is home to a lot of working rural people and land, and that it's not all just uh, either posh suburbs or, or beach houses or, you know, tourist areas. There, there's, a, there's a working underbelly to uh, the West, and, and that extends through Oregon and certainly certainly Washington. I think some of the um, the issues that we spoke about um, in an earlier episode about about, the, about Seattle and the current cultural and identity crisis in play there, I think that has a lot to do uh, 
with not being able to embrace a working class, uh, you know, real baseline, sometimes even criminal, great historical culture, and, and not being able to reconcile that with the new uh, technocrat billionaires, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So for, yeah, like you, uh, glad that you clarified the Manson thing. So it looks like he grew up in, in Ashland. It looks like his parents were from, and it is Ashland, Kentucky. Um, okay. Which is, cool. yeah, not far. Yeah. yeah. But so, uh, yeah, this is actually very interesting about, you know, this idea of a figure from the heartland moving west to this area of Los Angeles and the strange alchemy that happens when you transpose uh, one spirit of place into another, which happens more and more often now in, in our lifetimes, certainly more than it did a few hundred years ago. Um, the, the movement of Manson from the middle, well, actually, I guess Kentucky's more eastern, it's the Appalachia, uh, all the way out west with these kind of big dreams of being, uh, you know, a star. Um, that it really is this kind of in the way that the Black Dahlia represented a kind of uh, doomed Hollywood starlet that came to personify Hollywood and as goes Hollywood, so goes Los Angeles. And then so goes that whole kind of region of California. Right. Like you said, right. completely ignoring areas like Bakersfield and San Luis Obispo and and places that are much more kind of working class. Um so, in the, so I think that we have the Black Dahlia, and then we have uh, Manson. So there is this idea of like the, this itinerant person coming from the heartland to, in a sense, either pervert or be perverted by the energy that's surrounding Los Angeles and its you know sundry Californian locales is very interesting to me. I wonder if you had some thoughts on that about like this. This almost like this outsider, this duality between the middle of the country and the West Coast. Well, it's funny that you know the way I love the way you you phrase that 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 someone like Manson, if we say he's emblematic of 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 many coming out to the West Coast to pervert the culture there, or was he also perverted by it? I, I don't think that latter point has been emphasized enough with him or with a history of outcasts and fugitives finding refuge in the West, trying to reinvent themselves. One of uh, my best essays is called Just Simply Headed, which has to do with this dream of, of trying to find the great Western paradise of some kind. And all of the bad things that happen. I mean, that's fundamentally part of the California mythos. Not so much Oregon, I don't think. Uh, I'm not sure what the what the Oregon mythos is. Uh, Seattle, I think, did have some of that uh, big timber, big dreams, uh, longshoremen going to Alaska. You know, all of that possibility um, tied in with a really super rich and enduring uh, Native American culture, which which California does not have, mm -hmm. uh, it it it's almost like California has its not just a set of archetypes. It has such a complex mythos. It's like a mutant, you know, ball erupting with faces. You know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. I think that if we were to put uh, a, the kind of origin of. Uh, Oregon, it would be one of 
uh, actually white supremacy in the actual, uh, you know, true sense of that word, not in the overused way that it's uh, typically employed in these days. Um, Oregon was a whites only state until the early 1950s. So you simply just couldn't move there if you were. You know, I'm not sure I knew that, David. Uh, That's a good example of how something important can be. Well, that's what we're trying to do for our listeners. Thank you. I didn't know that. And it's interesting, you know, that it it ended up being this kind of hub of of wokeness because, you know, the 1950s were a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Right. And there's still not a huge presence of black people in Portland in particular. And where there is a presence of black people, they are getting pushed out by gentrification. So uh, Oregon, all these all these states, you know, where you where you find wokeness, they seem to be wrestling with their identities in a really kind of serious way. It goes back to what we talked about in the free to air episode about this free floating anxiety that has to find its locus somewhere. It has to be, you know, it has to be poured into something. And it is interesting when you go to the heartland in Oklahoma, this isn't necessarily a positive check mark in the Oklahoma box here, but perhaps you have a perhaps you have a Be state warned. that's perhaps you have a state that's that's wrestling a little bit less with its identity, right? That is a bit more stubbornly stuck in its ways. Um, and what you get from that are a lot of negatives, no doubts there. But perhaps a little bit less of this kind of schizophrenic uh, signaling that we're seeing from places like the West Coast, you know, because it comes from the I feel like it comes from California and Oregon and Seattle, this kind of woke locus. Not I mean, not even really New York, although it does definitely have sort of a home in some of the hipster dens of Brooklyn and Manhattan and what have you. But I feel like uh, the East Coast New York scene is a bit more derisive of the woke stuff whereas the west coast is just like you know full-on religious with this kind of thing you know i'm I'm trying to disagree with that from and i'm not sure why but just just to be contrarian and and to Mm -hmm. uh to throw in a few hurdles but I, i i do find that uh hard to outright disagree with uh, here's what I'd say about the East Coast version of this. And I think this has held true uh, historically about kind of how the two can agree but, but, but be different. I think New York institutionalizes um, the, the fervor into the publishing industry, media companies, but it's less uh, accepted as, as the official street-level truth. Uh, whereas, yeah, I think you're right. In, on the West Coast, I think, you know, it. What to say? Uh, the capacity for any kind of of critical thought in uh, in a new left term, you know, terms mm-hmm. from the 1960s. I mean, think of what of the intellectual power that the new left in, it brought to critique at large. But not just critique of, of oppositional views, but of themselves. Yeah. And, and that capacity is just, no, no, we're not doing that on the West Coast. There's no point in, in if we look in the mirror, you know what the chances are. Right, right. And that's something that I think you can say of, uh, oh, man, well, California is a state of what, 30 million people? 
there's a bunch of people in that state. So it is it is shedding population in certain you know demographics. Oh, it which is. is, and they're coming for the first here. time. They're coming here, and they're taking the cash that they they're taking the cash that they made from selling their 800 square foot closet for a quarter million dollars in Los Angeles, and coming out here and living like kings, which, in my opinion, is just smart. That's just that's just good putting you know good money out there. But you know, from the the West Coast liberal wine mom establishment type thing, right, is sort of notorious for a complete lack of self reflection at all, right? I think that they would prefer to just be like, okay, we're not discussing this anymore. Uh, Self-reflection um, is out the window. We are the good guys, and that is all there is to it. And you will listen to us. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know. There's a lot of this kind of covering up that's going on uh, on the West Coast. And I think it's because there's a there's a deep evil out there, another malevolent <laughs> spirit. Another malevolent spirit. <laughs> Seattle Seattle has a, a Wendigo and El Paso, or not El Paso, what am I saying? Los Angeles has a uh, some sort of um, chupacabra with Ray-Ban sunglasses on, maybe? I don't know. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh. Well, look, I, I have to uh, I have to just pause to, to collect my... Uh, my the watch springs in my head, but uh, I, I, I've had an epiphany here. I want to just really play this on the fly. I remind our listeners we we are are conducting an ongoing experiment into David's mind and cognitive enhancement, which we're testing out in terms of memory inference, improvisation, and. The ability to encapsulate and deal with lots of different information without crushing the shit out of it. So here's his challenge, and he brought this upon himself. Okay. okay. As, as, I, as a, I typically do, yes. Mm-hmm. This is, again, a kind of, I mean, maybe the best way to think of it is, is a, a, a TV show pitch. Okay. So you've got to have the concept and uh, just some arc of the conflicts and issues. But I was thinking earlier about I wanted to put you in the situation of having to do something with a walking dead sort of zombie theme, however explicit that that is. But here's my modified version for you to think of and to run in parallel while we go back to our conversation. I want you to think of being a showrunner for a kind of zombie like show, a metaphorical zombie, if you choose. But the premise is that you and your family have joined maybe a small group and have purchased a really nice set of, you know, bit of land, not maybe a real farm, but a working, you know, surviving community sort of property. And into your midst, they come. They come swarming from the West Coast. They bring bags and bags of money and they bring bags and boxes and whole rooms full of assumptions about your kind. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's your challenge while we keep rocking. Okay. I like it. I will think about that for sure. Okay. 
<laughs> so where were we? Oh yes, California is evil. Okay, so back to back to. No, I'm just kidding. Of course. Um, well, no, I, I want to pinch at that a little bit because I I, I mean I find it very fun. I love when you use the word evil. I mean I love that word, but I, somehow you, when you talk about evil malignant spirits, I, I feel like you're kind of excited about them and want to yeah. see more of them. And right. I I start thinking, yeah, I, I want to I want to draw or paint those or or try to create them in animation. I, I yeah, we're David's monsters, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what? Are we saying then to go back to your binary about Charles Manson, not just as an individual, but here as an emblematic archetypal figure? Did he bring the evil mm-hmm. to California because people come to California with all their hopes and dreams and darknesses, and that's just the way it is? So you're going to get some evil. Mm-hmm. Or, and, or, let's do and, or, we're and, or people. Uh, or are we both? No, we're both. Okay, yeah, both. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and. <laughs> um, was there something in the California mythos that, I mean, Manson, like a lot of these you know, figures, these fugitives, the fugitive uh, population that we're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, they they had they they did have problems. They had tough lives when they arrived. That's and they were trying to escape. But did something in the California network of of spirits reach out in a dark way and and really twist it? Yeah, and I think that you can really uh, pinpoint a lot of these spirits as having to do with uh, film and entertainment in general. These are the spirits that David Lynch is depicting in Twin Peaks or Inland Empire. Um, I think that uh, at a certain point, these kind of spirits demand a blood sacrifice. And in the case of Charles Manson and his cult, it was the sacrifice of a child, right? Because we have to remember it wasn't just uh, Sharon Tate and uh, buh, buh, buh. forget the names of the other victims, unfortunately. Amy Folger was one, heir to the coffee fortune. Right. Who's the guy you got? Yeah. Yeah, one guy got whacked too. I forget his name. Um, but it was also Sharon Tate's unborn child, right? Who was who was killed, right? So I think about this in terms of uh, you know somebody coming from Appalachia, which is full of its own magic. I mean, it's just dripping with you know folklore and you know uh, cu- you know cures for removing warts with pennies and things like that. You know, you have this person who has this kind of this kind of power about him. You get him put into very likely some kind of MK Ultra program while he's bouncing around prison for assaults and rapes and things of that nature. Um, and then you let him loose on this uh, in this milieu. And I think it's really a meeting of two demons, right? I mean, I, I think that it is an and situation where the whatever these things are, like they have they have to symbolically represent um, the sacrifice of children that our entertainment industry would become kind of notorious for and our culture in general, right? Because American culture eats the young. That's what we do, whether it's Shirley Temple or Disney Channel starlets who all get molested by their showrunners um, down out into into culture in which 
rather than the old sacrificing for the young, the young are continuously expected to sacrifice for the old as, you know, as, as, as the, the older generations kind of like hang on to their power and what have you. So all of this had to take place uh, in a pop culture, largely disseminated metaphorical form in order for this demon to be satiated, right? It wasn't enough that it was, uh, that he just killed any people and killed just anybody's unborn child. It had to be, you know, Sharon Tate. It had to be a starlet whom this happened to in order for the for the proper blood to be spilled. Wow, I, you know, it, in case anyone listening didn't realize what an amazing thing that was. <laughs> I'm not sure what to tell you. I can I I can I absolutely swear that was not rehearsed. David just uh, came up with that just so beautiful. I mean, I, it's sort of hovering in the air in my office. It's like, wow. It's like the pot smoke at the Patti Smith concert. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, an amazing stream into the whole concept of child sacrifice. And I'm going to trail mark that as something that we have to uh, come back to big time because I, I think that is an enormous idea. Uh mm-hmm. It works on so many, so many levels, all the way down to, I think, a very literal, specific uh, neighborhood level that anyone can see. You don't have to be educated in mythology and folklore and literature to see it. Uh, But the other thing, though, that I think is, is then connected with that or needs to be teased out is that if my contention is right, that, that an observation, a model that you've given us works from giant religious, cosmological, cultural levels all the way down to street level, parking lot level, we still have to go the other way and say, how did parking lot, salt of the earth, dust of the road people uh, like Charles Manson? How did they find their way to that mythological power? And I do have some some ideas because I know something about what influenced Manson and some of the things that were on his list. But I want to throw that back to you because it does work both ways. If you say you have this just monstrously either evil or beautiful or both uh, mythos streaming down into our daily lives, such that even people with no experience of talking about words like mythos or whatever, psychology, cultural history, that they can grasp it. How do you account for for someone being able to manipulate? I mean, it's really a question. How do they work that sacred machine? So is the question in particular with how did he kind of start his cult or how did he successfully interact with this malevolent entity or both? I think the latter, because I think okay. it is, it's yeah. a symbiotic sort of connect. I mean, he he really uh, b- became, uh, you know, an apprentice to it. I mean, there was a kind of relationship with this entity or, or, or sure. network of forces. Uh, right. And he was doing some magic with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that that um, that's the X factor, right? I'm not entirely sure, but if I were to speculate as to why in particular he 
he was the the vessel for this i'd have to assume that um you know I do think that he was a person who, you know, kind of throughout his whole life, he was in a sense ritualistically tortured in one way or the other, uh, whether uh-huh, it was through uh-huh. his own his own that. relatives uh, or the U.S. Uh, you know prison system. Um, I think that he, you uh, know, he had you know he had his air trees, water, and animals movement, the the ATWA. So mm-hmm. he was very kind of connected to. The land and i think that the combination of of massive amounts of abuse on behalf of the the kind of system the human systems in place and that kind of connection to nature i think really kind of opens opens the doorway to a communion with uh these kind of malevolent entities of the land you know what i mean i think i think that it takes both of those things in order to to be picked now as to why exactly he was he was picked that's a great question i'd have to think about that some more and i'd probably also revisit that lavenda book that i mentioned earlier because it's a it's a big giant three volume set and i've only read the first volume which dealt specifically with manson but it's called sinister forces and it's it's a great and entertaining almost like pulp pop history of um well of the sinister forces behind government and entertainment and things like that and how it's all linked together it's very very much you know red thread on a on a crazy person's wall but a lot of fun to read but if i remember correctly lavenda has some almost direct answers to your question that i'm not being able, i'm not pulling out of my uh my memory oh, i think right you've now. done a beautiful job and i i would supplement it uh what you're uh, supposition is there by um, some things that I think are, are accurate. We, we, we have some reason to believe this, but I think are much more uh, mundane and, and not as interesting as, as what you just said. But uh, the influences of, um, well, Scientology, he was he was aware of what was going on there. He did, you know, he was certainly on top of some of the methodology. Uh, he said that LSD was enormously important and, uh, Robert Heinlein, Stranger in a Strange Land. Um, the folk music, the, the transition between uh, the Heartland uh, mm-hmm. music mm-hmm. and into a West Coast uh, or New York, but mainly West Coast, Berkeley, you know, street corner singing, cafe, you know, coffee houses as they used to be called. Uh, and that into the L.A. singer-songwriter thing. Yeah, and, of course, yeah. we all know that he was influenced by the Beatles, you know. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. kind of the Beatles, everyone, you could say anyone uh, really then was influenced by the Beatles in some way or coping right. with them. So, But also, I don't think just, that's just, as interesting as what you put forward. Sorry. No, 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 no worries. I was interrupting you but because I, I just wanted to get this while it was fresh on my mind. That folk music of the time of the '60s, this mm-hmm. the, what you what you put very well, you know, as this kind of transposition from the heartland to L.A. When I listen to that music, and it can be the subject matter of the song is irrelevant, but when I hear that that kind of music all the way up to, you know, like White Rabbit, th- right. aren't aren't those songs cursed and spooky? I'm not saying they're not good, but there's a vibe from those songs that is not replicated in any other type of music that America has ever produced. There is a spookiness to that kind of stuff. And I don't know if it's a spookiness that was 
placed on it retroactively based on kind of what what came of the if we're call, we'll call it maybe the Manson era but when I hear those songs man I it, like I get chills I get goosebumps thinking about them there's something to that music and I don't know what it is Oh, look, there's absolutely no question about that. It's not in the music. It is. It's so deeply encoded within it. It isn't. But I mean, the thing about that's so bizarre about some of this, think of the song White Rabbit, which is really, I mean, it was certainly interpreted entirely, uh, not just as a reference to Alice in Wonderland and whatever Lewis Carroll intended there, but to just contemporary drug use and particularly hallucinogens like LSD. There's just no question. I mean, that's an, it's an LSD anthem, but here's the thing. I mean, and I know something about this. It's not a good song to listen to while you're tripping. It really isn't. It's sinister and spooky. As you said, it's malevolent in a way, you know, feed your head. I mean, okay, right. It's more like yeah. something eating your head, you know? Right, right. Or like, I mean, think about, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, like the sound of silence, you know? Oh, wow. Isn't that, yeah. isn't that a spooky song? It's just creepy. And, you yeah. know, has it always, that's my question though, has it always been spooky or is it just spooky now? Look, I think it was always spooky. I felt that, you know, when I was a child hearing it. I mean, and the I mean the lyrics are really pretty heavy, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's not just hello dark is my old friend, you know. I mean, it's you know, the visions of the prophets are written on the subway walls, you know. We've kind of mm-hmm. we've definitely ratcheted up the songwriting there to uh to a serious level, but it's yeah, I mean, imagine, you know, that's very funny to think of that song in terms of, well, for starters, just, you know, claustrophobic, agoraphobic, depressive people. But then those kind of people, uh, the, the, the horror, I'm, not, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but just the, the torture they must have been going through during the mm. lockdown phase, mm. or as my psychologist friend says, Maybe it was kind of bliss. Hmm. The lock, the, the the these lock, the lockdowns. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I so I, I, kind of, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, I'm thinking about it now. I mean, what do you think? I mean, it's 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 weird uh, logic, but in, it's still a kind of logic. Oh no, absolutely. I mean, feeling a kind of bliss when you're, you know, going through something like a lockdown or, you know, uh, kind of in these sort of spooky depressing songs or whatever makes complete sense because in the absence of any kind of real feeling on a day-to-day basis, sometimes the the very real feeling of depression and sadness and 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 impotence at least it's something right so mm-hmm. it creates it creates its own kind of like weird bliss i've thought this all the time we brought this up on the show before and you know if you want to get into it that's fine but i mean it's i really do think that there are people who uh who enjoy going through things like this right who who kind of in some perverse way that i that i don't understand because it's so antithetical to who i am as a person and where my values are aligned uh i think a lot of people like it 
I think people like being locked down. You know, I think they, I think they like that, that, that dark authoritarianism. Well, you know, that's so interesting way to circle back to this whole. Uh, it's not just the events that I just attended uh, and the whole California coastal vibe it, across its spectrum of, of, you know, manifestations. Some of them really cool and some of them really uh, frustrating and, and maybe even tragic, as we've just been talking about. What do you think, if we look at, at the whole, well, a really... Uh, the absolute core of the counterculture revolution moment, beyond the protest and activism, the positive aspect of it seems to me to be individual expression, freedom, uh, you know, California wearing fewer clothes, uh, really out and about public, uh, a public spectacle, a public ceremony without necessarily any set structure, really. And we we found that it, it developed its own structures as they as as that kind of movement always does, but it wasn't coordinated and organized the way sometimes the the media and corporate history will tell us. But how did we go from that kind of expansiveness, you know, the generosity of spirit and and openness of Whitman and uh, Henry Miller. How do we go to lockdown? And I don't mean just COVID locked. I really, I mean much more than that. I mean a, a lockdown of of spirit, a lockdown of critical thinking, uh, yeah. a lockdown of assumed structures that can no longer be questioned. How do we get to that polarity? Ooh, oh man, big big question. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that I think. I think some places to look for that have a lot to do with American empire um, and its sort of economic rise and then eventual decline. I think it does have to do with, uh, you know, if you're going to look at the at the economics, you have to look at the imperialist angle, you know, of America being all over the world, losing all these uh, all these wars and conflicts and sending young men out to be like put into a meat grinder i think that has a lot to do with it i think that people began to become isolationist <laughs> but their their woke politics won't let them stop taking in immigrants so they're they're supporting an, an isolation in a different way right it's like right. just, just 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 put me just put me in jail you know what i mean like I don't want to deal with any of this anymore. It's a it's a reckoning with and a moratorium, not a moratorium, but a, we'll just say a reckoning with um, generations and generations of kind of soulless corporatism that becomes free floating and doesn't have an outlet. And um, some people, you know, the, the definition of insanity is, you know, trying the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And uh, I just think that we see people going deeper and deeper into their giving up their rights and things to, to corporate entities to keep them, you know, locked down and under under lock and key, so to speak, uh, rather than maybe say that the that their whole way of living is uh, is generally incorrect and, and needs to be looked at in a different way. I think that's a start, but it's nowhere near near exhaustive.
Now, I think we should trailhead that too. We're, we're getting onto some really, really rich, but very expansive and uh, not amorphous because I, I think they do have shape and structure, but, but they're complicated. They're, they're complicated quantum, quantum cultural ideas, culture capital C, quantum culture we're dealing with here. Uh, a couple of really big ones um, to come out of this show. I mean, I'm really excited about that, but I, I'm a little bit uh, flummoxed as you are. Uh, but I, I want to go a little bit then between those really, really big notions and something that I think is is very accessible to us in media terms. And I think it is something that you hear people talking about at the gas station on the road. Uh, it, it's the personal freedoms versus social responsibility schism, which seems to be very, very uh, emblematic and kind of, well, I think all the way to full on symbolic of, of our times, I'm, certainly American times. Would, would you agree that's at least one of the. Absolutely. Absolutely. OK. Yeah. That, okay. That's, I think that's the that's the conflict right now. Yeah, I do too. I think I think it can take a few different forms, wear a few different hats. But wh- however you look at, it, I think that's a pretty good gloss summation of what the issue is. Yeah. Well, I I'm a huge uh, fan of uh, Emerson. I uh, I did um, some key graduate school work on him, and I I come and go off him from time to time, and and there are reasons to do that. Uh, and I usually go, get back to him via William James. But his essay, Self-Reliance, is one of his most famous. And I really encourage listeners to re- check that out if you if you never have. Most people probably have been exposed to it or certainly have heard of it. But it poses some really interesting uh, questions and conflicts that are, that, yes, they are connected to personal freedoms versus social responsibility, but this is given another slant, and I think we desperately need another view of that paradigm, that binary, that conflict, that schism. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to get past it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Trail marker indeed. I think that's probably a good place to stop the meat of the show, and we'll pick that up next time. What do you think? I think that's good. I think okay. that's very good. And um, okay, well, um, are we uh, ready to hear about the TV show pitch? Yes. Okay, I think I have it. So, okay, so we've got people from the West Coast escaping to the the heartland, right? Away from this yes. zombie plague. Okay. So I think but they I have it. to overcome some. Yeah. Uh, ideological uh, mm-hmm. plaguery of their own in terms of who who's living there. What's the history? What's really going on? Yeah, I think I've got it. Tell me what you okay. think about this. Okay, so we get a group of people coming from the West Coast, and we can get every character to be uh, its <laughs> its own stereotype of the of the West Coast person. You got the hippie. You have the big tech big money person you have uh you know even even some of the kind of cooler subcultures of the west coast right like the cholo or something like that right um and they so they get to this uh sort of compound 
in the heartland, and they are uh, welcomed in uh, with tentatively, right? Because th- these heartland people are well armed, and they will not hesitate to 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 kill these people, right? So here is where the ideological differences come in. In this zombie apocalypse, only children have been affected by the plague. Only children. No adults. So the West Coast people have essentially uh, murdered all of their zombie children and have retreated (laughs) to the heartland. Now, when when they get to the heartland... There is a compound within the compound called the daycare, and it's where all of the zombie children are kept. Now, the Westerners, with their money and their influence, they've kind of wormed their way in, right? And they start saying, look, there's not going to be a cure for this thing. These kids are basically dead. We need to just, you know, do a maybe like a severely late-term abortion on all of these kids. Well, that doesn't sit well with the heartlanders right these are the babies these are the children we don't we don't ever put them down ever and that leads to this uh this climax where the what people from the the west are uh are slaughtered <laughs> or not you know the ending is still in the works but i was i was thinking uh that it could be called it could be called the daycare and it would act as this like great Rorschach test, depending on how you feel about certain ideological issues. What do you think of that? I think that's just a thing of beauty and delight. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I think you should get the transcript of this and get the pitch off. It's fan. I love the daycare. That just yeah. gets me. That's so ominous. I can I can exactly hear the the soundtrack music to that. Yeah. Oh, that's that's <laughs> very concerning. Absolutely, and that says so much about where we are. If if a simple, humble, you know, basic, friendly, nurturing word like the daycare can have something uh, really dark and, and suspicious about it. I love that. That's, that's a beautiful job. Beautiful Thank job. You. Thank you. Yeah. I'll write that script and send it off. <laughs> Maybe we'll see it on Netflix one day. How funny would that be? If, if one of these took off and, yeah. you know, between, between the breathers and the daycare, we've got some good uh, pandemic uh, genre fiction going on here. And I love how you're pulling with each one, pulling just different pieces of of the cultural junkyard of the time, and, and, and you know, getting certain machines working again, and just using others as sort of little background motifs. There's a lot of, of cool stuff that you're doing. I I can see it all. I can see it all. This yeah. one was particularly great. Okay, oh, so it's got lines. I'll have to write it. <laughs> but. Um... So do we have a practical tip today, by any chance? Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, I, I was. I have this really great, bright yellow, uh, right in the rain, all-weather field book that I make certain kinds of notes in. And I I sort of make them in the heat of the moment and then kind of don't, leave, don't use the notebook again for a while but i came upon this uh, this idea of uh, it was it's a question to my it's a sincere question what if we considered our capacity to attract and maintain love in terms 
of the anxieties we cause. Think about that for a moment. I, 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 I can't remember the context of when I wrote that. Um, I don't date things. And I, I, I have no idea what I was thinking, but I like that idea. I, I, I mean, I think that that works in the context of love. And I think that, I mean, who do you feel anxiety for? Well, it's usually people you love in some way. So yeah, right. it, it's a very, it's, it's almost a, a completely self-evident idea, but we just don't think of it like that so much. But I think the bigger principle is, and this is so relevant to this polarized, either or cut and dry, black and white time that we live in, to really be able to turn dialectics and binaries around and use them for our own inquiry and restorative process. Sometimes that means looking at something positive, love, in terms of the negative. And I think anxiety is a really good negative of the love. Well, there are many in love, right? Love can go wrong in so many ways. There are so many kinds of love, and they all can go wrong in who knows how many ways. But I think anxiety is a good linking uh, emotional word to have a look at the downside, if not I think the downside more than the dark side of, of love. But if we were, what if we were doing that as a dynamic oscillation process? David and I talk about oscillation as the, the, the key, a key verb and a key way to break down the distinction between nouns and get things active, like that beautiful voice, perfectly in time. Yeah. So, but we have to be able to do that in, in ways that are challenging to us as well as ways that are reinforcing. If we only look at the good stuff, we choose kindness. Well, we got to look at, we got to turn it around and goes, well, what were our choices? How did we get to choose that? Do we always choose it? Kindness to whom? What for? What's, does that choice end up? in something are there results of it but only if we can do that within our own heads this is where any kind of of change of mind and change of heart is going to come from is when we use basic language structural concept tools like dialectic binary and the larger concept of a paradigm only when we get a hold of those in our own heads and say well let's just think about it this way Let's try another perspective. And I think one of the things that, that David and I are, are trying to do in this podcast series is perform that, perform that ritual, perform that ceremony. How do we do it? Well, one great way is interchange, dialogue, interview, questionings. David's come up with some stuff that's just, I think, whoa, man, where? And I swear, None of this is rehearsed, right? I mean, there's absolutely this one, nothing. This one probably less so than most episodes that we do. I mean, we typically talk for about 30 minutes, just about where we want to go with the episode. But this one, uh, you know, we turned the mic on and just started rocking. Wow. Well, I've got a whole... Uh, I've, well, I'm doing them on, on index cards, but I've got five index cards dealing with some trail markers of big things that we've got to, uh, to forge ahead with because they're really exciting. 
I think we should have a debrief uh, before we pass on any promises or uh, predictions uh, to listeners about where they're going to go, because there's some really cool ones. I, I can't decide which is my favorite to uh, mm-hmm. take on next. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, I think, uh, you know what? I just, I just realized this, this episode, um, but you know, we were talking about freaks and I think what has kind of freed me in this format because I, I feel really good right now is I was like wait a minute I'm gonna let my freak flag fly on this show I do believe in yeah. evil spirits and malevolent entities and I'm not gonna <laughs> equivocate or talk around this shit anymore you know what I mean it's just right on and that's but that makes it interesting so I'm not constantly being like um well you know it's an evil spirit but you know in a metaphorical se- no Evil spirit. Evil spirit looks like a chupacabra. I'm sticking by it. You know, there's a great portrait of Dickens called Dickens' Dream, and he's nodding out in this great sort of leather chair in front of a fire, and all of his characters surround him, you know, in miniature. It's quite a weird uh, hallucinogenic sort of situation. You know, you think, oh, okay, was he surrounded by all these little, you know, creatures and visions? But I have this vision of, of David's dream of maybe maybe on a porch, and, and but you're surrounded by all these great creatures and freaks, sort of a circus ominous. How's that? Circus ominous. Yeah. Of all these American sort of entities and malevolent. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and the look on your face is, is like those Chinese, you know, you, the, your eyes are glittering. You're, you're, ex- right. you're sort of excited. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And speaking of speaking of dreams, we have one of those too. Oh, we do. We do. It, it you know, it had it, I have to say I think I was probably uh, very very tired from the road the curving bends of of the coast highway and almost to that point where I wasn't really sleeping as well because I was so tired. So it because the dream is a little structured. But uh People may know that Steely Dance, uh, the title track Asia, from probably their most famous album. And the long, there's a line about the, uh, the dude ranch above the sea. You know, one of these California uh, spa retreat, uh, Zen meditation, maybe a play on the Esalen Institute, you know, that kind of thing. So here I am exactly in that that world. And I dreamed I was at a kind of dude ranch by the sea. But there were some real strange things uh, going on with it, which uh, I conspiratorially felt I I was in on. It, it, It did appear really friendly and nice and meditative. And there were wind chimes and there were sarongs and incense. And it seemed all very sort of new age counterculture up to woke, uh, just reinforcing and inclusive. But all of the activities had something really fundamentally wrong with them. None of the games actually worked. Everything was designed to really be quite frustrating us if you were Anywhere on the OCD spectrum, if you have, had any kind of uh, certain medications in your system or recreational medications, they were designed to drive you completely nuts. 
And I thought, wait a minute, maybe this is some sort of conspiracy. Maybe the, maybe this is run by some science. You know, maybe we're being videotaped, and this is really like a very perverse Big Brother show. Mm-hmm. And there was this other dude there who was. He looked at me at the same time, and I knew that he was thinking the exact same thoughts. And he managed to find a way. I can't, there was a little bit of an interchange with other people, but he managed to find a way in sort of like prison terms because we had now repositioned this enlightenment resort as potentially a kind of prison. He managed to inch over me to me and said, if we don't make a break soon, we can't. And that was the thought that I woke up to hearing the waves crashing on the beach in central California. Uh, and as Melville said, crashing, you know, as they have in for 5,000 years or, or many, many, many more. Uh, there's an elephant seal on the beach. There's all this beauty, serenity, social order, consensus. Everything's good. But I kept hearing that guy in my dream. Mm-hmm. So there. Wise words. Wise words indeed. I've been having uh, just some utterly phenomenal sex dreams lately. Been fantastic. <laughs> just wonderful. Oh, that's great. That's was, great. Uh, that's a there, real buzz. Yeah, there was one that I was having the other night, and I got woken up in the middle of it because Gus was up and he needed he needed milk. And, uh, you know, Rios kind of saw that I was awake, and she was like, you know, can you can you take him for a second? And I, I just, I'll be completely honest, I said, I, I need five more minutes. I just need five more minutes of sleep. I got to see how this one plays out. <laughs> you know, so a little you know, bit of profundity you, from from Chris, and uh, and then I'm just over here, uh, you know, slapping cheeks in my in my jeans in my dreams. So you know, no, I think that's really cool, and I think well, I think I'm going to ch- just task you with keeping trying to keep some sort of dream journal record because. We don't have that. That I mean, as someone who studies dreams, I know that we don't have a really good understanding of how dreams uh, affect you know someone going through fatherhood. We have quite a bit of information about motherhood, um, but not fatherhood. And and you're a new generation of dads having much more to do with Gus at this stage. So I think the dream life record would be really helpful. You know, I will do that. Culturally. I will, I will do that. I'll keep a journal by my bed. Um, that's a really good idea, I think. So on that note, I think we'll close out here for this uh, Patreon episode. Thanks so much to everybody who subscribed. Tell all of your friends, get everybody subscribed. Because, man, it really does seem like you you kind of need both halves of this of this podcast to really get the full experience. I mean, we're not we're not just doing a bonus content where we're kind of rehashing what we talk about in the in the free to air episode. There are some that I used to follow and then I stopped following because their bonus episodes were essentially outtakes of their major episode. But man, this is you know. There's so much content now, you know, there's four, there's 14 of these episodes 
and I think people will really get a lot of bang for their buck if they if they uh, subscribe and and listen to them all. You know, just get get deep into the no country headspace because if we think about the first year as season one, we think about the second year as season two. I think we're ready to just like take off with this stuff. You know, I think I think we're uh, we've we've found our. Well, we've always had a groove, but we've definitely found a rhythm and a groove, and we're gonna go to some cool fucking places. So, tell your friends, folks, tell them to come over here. And this would be a great episode to listen to because David ripped some serious silver out of the air, and I don't know how he did it. It it was just, it was verging on creating a new kind of intellectual discourse that is rap related, but, but its own genre completely unto itself. I thought that was just marvelous. I, I can't wait to listen to that back just to make sure I was anywhere in that dimension. Yeah, uh, man, we're on it, bro. We're on it. Thanks everybody. Till next time. Thanks everyone. Take care. Be safe. Be sane. Be sensible.